Father, we're reminded in our study of the book of Genesis that you are the author of life itself and all of the creation and the planet that we live on and the stars, the sun and the moon, all has come from your hand and all was done, excellent, uh, perfect in its origin. And Lord, we live today in a world that has been beset by sin and yet the God of perfection still reigns and you live in our hearts and lives. And we long for that day when we will stand in your presence in the courts of the King. And Father, we will no longer be beset by the sin that is rampant here on this planet. Lord, I pray that you will guard our hearts and minds through the Spirit of God, that we might resist the evil that is around us, and that we might live in accordance with your word and not in accordance with the natural tendencies of our flesh. We need your help, O oh Lord, and we're so grateful that as we study the lives of these great men and women who lived 4,000 years ago, that uh, they are an example to us, uh, both of good and, and of the things that we should avoid. And I ask, Lord, that uh, we will truly learn these lessons and we'll recognize that uh, you're at work to change our lives each and every day. We're all in great need of your touch every day. And so we submit to your authority and ask for your specific blessing in Christ's name. Amen. We're in the 30th chapter of Genesis. And uh, last week, we studied the passage from verse 25 down through verse 36 of Genesis chapter 30. And uh, we're dealing with the uh, moment when Jacob finally said to Laban, I have labored here all these years, and I have my two wives, and actually two concubines, and all these children, and uh, I'm ready to go back to Canaan. And Laban makes the complaint, or, or resists that. He doesn't want to lose Jacob, because he knows that blessing has come upon him because of Jacob's presence. Laban didn't really completely understand that. He, he never sorted through it all to understand the difference between a, a God who is real and true and is the sovereign and only God and the multiplicity of gods that uh, were accepted in the lives of the vast majority of people who lived in the Mediterranean world in that day. Uh, all he knew was he didn't want Jacob to leave. So uh, he again offers to Jacob the opportunity to strike up a deal. Tell me, what will it take to keep you here? And uh, so Jacob makes the deal, you know, and, and we were at the process of studying that last time. <coughs> and in some ways, it's a little bit complex, partly because we don't really understand all that was involved here. But again, let me just uh, refresh uh, your sanctified minds relative to this. And uh, the, basically, the deal was, I have, Laban said, I have all of these flocks, and you've been tending them, what would the deal be? And Jacob said, the deal is this. I will keep all of the non-mainline animals that are born. In other words, amongst the goats, all of those that are not pure black. Amongst the sheep, all of those that are not pure white. Now, we've noted the fact that black was the dominant strain, the, the uh, dominant <laughs> gene in goats, uh, in that particular type of goat at that time, and, and white amongst the sheep. In order to make this a, uh, a sure deal that Laban would, uh, could not argue with, the herd was culled of all animals that were not 
pure black goats and pure white sheep. So any sheep that had any other color in it, any goat that had any white in it, they were all taken out of that herd, or those herds, those flocks, and, and transported three days journey away. So there'd be no way in which the culled herd could mix with the purified herd. Now, to that purified herd, any of the animals like the culled animals that would be born would belong to Jacob. That was the deal. And we noted last time that uh, Jacob was putting himself in a very uh, difficult position, it would seem. Uh, it, it was not likely that very large number of non-pure black and non-pure white would be born uh, because those that were not had been removed from the flock. But I mentioned to you last time that Jacob had long time herded animals and for the better part of a century he had spent his life with goats and sheep and so he knew what kinds of odds he was facing and he was obviously putting himself in the hands of God. Now, Dr. Jim Hardy came up after class last time and he said it's been a long time since he's had genetics, but looking at that little chart that uh, I drew for you, he pointed out something that I think we should uh, reinforce. I mentioned to you last time that uh, if, if we looked at the middle box, and some of you may not have this, but I, we passed it out last time. In the middle box, you have the uh, genotype where the dominant black and the recessive non-black gene is found in both the parent goats. Okay, the male goat and the female goat has both the big B, which stands for the dominant black, and the little b, which stands for the recessive uh, gene, which would be non-black, somehow spotted or streaked or striped or whatever it would turn out to be. That would be the very best scenario possible in an all-black herd because if the, if the dominant gene is there, the animal's all black. It's only if the... Uh, genes in both uh, gametes which are formed through meiosis are the recessive gene and that comes from both animals that uh, you could possibly have or that is at least the, the two recessive genes are the ones that, are produ that produce the zygote. That, that's the only possibility for a non-black goat. And I, I tried to s emphasize that uh, the 25% ratio, which is what shows up in this little box, would not really be the ratio because most of the animals would not necessarily have that combination of genes. And, and Jim was pointing out that if you look down through the first three, you'll discover that these are probably the, the genotypes that existed in the herd. And uh, we can't know, of course, if they were equally distributed with those that did and those that did not have the recessive gene. But the best possible scenario would be that one out of 12 would be non-all black. Okay? That would be the best picture that could possibly come out of this in a natural situation with a large number of animals. Now, with a small number of animals, your, your, your averages just don't work out so well. It's like trying to, run, trying to run a bell curve for grading in a class with only 20 people in the class. It just really doesn't work. Uh, in order for a bell curve to work, you need to have a hundred or more students to kind of come up with some kind of a statistical average. And so it would be here. So we're probably talking about herds of thousands of animals. So it probably would function something like that, which would mean that the best situation would probably be 8%, would be non-all-black. Uh, non
And so with thinking about that, let's go on to the next passage, which really kind of stretches your imagination a little bit here. Verse 37. Then Jacob took fresh rods of poplar and almond and plane trees and peeled white stripes in them and exposed the white which was in the rods. And he set the rods which he had peeled in front of the flocks in the gutters, even in the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, and they mated when they came to, the, to, to drink. So the flocks mated by the rods, and the flocks brought forth stripes speckled and spotted. And Jacob separated the lambs and made the flocks face towards the striped and all the black in the flock of Laban. And he put his own herds apart, and he did not put them with Laban's flock. Moreover, it came about whenever the stronger of the flock were mating that Jacob would place the rods in the sight of the flock in the gutters, in the watering troughs, so that they might mate by the rods. But when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in, so the feebler were Laban's and the stronger Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. <laughs> See what happens when you start messing around with jeans, you end up with camels and donkeys. <laughs> now you read that passage and you say, whoa, <laughs> can we go on to another one? <laughs> this is a bit weird. And, you know, in many ways, it is. T today, we might call this prenatal influence or attempts at prenatal influence. We're, we're talking about here something which to us sounds like hocus pocus, you know. You're out there and you cut some branches off these trees and, and you peel all the little branches off and then you strip the bark and probably transversely, so that you've got what looks like a pole with a bunch of white stripes running around it, and you go and you stick this thing in the watering trough, and that's supposed to make the uh, animals turn out striped and patched and spotted and all of this. Now, to us it sounds like mumbo-jumbo, but, you know, it may have been considered scientific in that day. You know, we, we have to be careful, because what we call science today uh, might, 50 years from now, be looked upon as, well, Think of those poor benighted people back there, and they thought that's what really was true. Uh, you know, we look back, and it's funny, it's interesting to study the history of science and, and look what people believed really was true just really a hundred years ago or even two hundred years ago, and to see how it has changed so dramatically. And one of the things I've, I have found, and, and you see this maybe a little more in science simply because the opportunity for it to be published is there because you publish new scientific names often with the, the discoverer in the name, you know, like Eanthropus uh, Dawsoni or something, you know, founded by Dawson. There is a tendency to be arrogant. There is a tendency to think that we as the modern people are the most brilliant people who have ever lived. And we have the answer, and anybody who thought 20 years ago or 50 or 200 years ago is, you know, primitive in, in his thinking, and his ideas cannot possibly be right. Now, I find in the study of history, this is really very interesting, because you have modern historians who come along and say, those poor guys, just because they only lived 100 years from the time doesn't mean they should really know what was going on. We really know what was going on, because we're better able to interpret the facts than somebody who might have lived a short time after the event, you know. And I find that to be extremely arrogant myself. 
Because the closer you are to an event, hopefully, the more likely you are to have more accurate information than somebody who lives 2,000 years later. And so when you read these, these commentators who come along and they're talking about the Bible and they say, well, you know, you couldn't really have a real Adam and a real Eve. What they really were talking about was, was this whole concept of the human race evolving and it just makes a nice picture to try to describe how morality came into existence or some other such thing. And uh, to me, you know, that's just another example of human arrogance, which is really one of the biggest walls that separates us from God. You know, this, I, I think I mentioned this way back, maybe I even mentioned it in this class. I sometimes get my school classes and this class mixed up in terms of what I've said, but there are those, some of the great leaders in the field of evolution who have literally said, if you could somehow prove that evolution is not true, we simply will not accept the alternate, which is that God and creation is true. We will not accept it. We'll find something over here to be an alternative. Now, to me, that's not scientific. That's a mindset that is obviously antagonistic to God regardless of the truth. And, th and that's a real problem. And uh, those of you who are familiar with the Institute uh, of Scientific uh, Creation Research, of Creation Research, they find this all the time in the debates. Uh, they go and debate at a major university, and the debater, who is an evolutionist who debates against them, doesn't talk about the scientific facts, but argues about the philosophy of God being involved in this in any way. It can't be scientific if God had something to do with it. You know? and, and they just avoid the scientific facts of the whole matter. And, and, of course, part of the reason for that is the facts don't support evolution. But anyway... Jacob may have thought that this was scientific. I don't think that he thought that this was uh, somehow manipulating the spirits or, or the gods or something, because I believe that he was firmly convinced in Yahweh as the only true and sovereign God, and he was simply helping God out here by doing the scientifically uh, accepted practices of that particular time. So he goes out to the, palm, the, the, uh, the plane tree, which we call sycamore today. Uh, he goes to the almond, he goes to the poplar. Whether the poplar of that world at that time is the same poplar we know today is hard to know. But anyway, he takes these branches, and as I mentioned, he strips them or peels off the bark in a transverse way. So you have kind of like a pole. It looks like a pole with stripes around it. Uh, exposing the inner uh, white interior of the... Uh, of the branch, and then he sticks these things in the watering trough. Now, apparently, uh, I've never raised sheep. Uh, let's see. Uh, Rachel, have you ever raised sheep? Okay. It, uh, I've read that when sheep come to the watering trough, that's quite often when they'll, they'll mate. Now, I don't know if, that's, if you've discovered that to be true or not, but at least that's what I've read. And uh, anyway, they're, they're, they're coming here, and he's put these rods in the uh, watering trough. Now, is it primarily his emphasis upon a visual thing, or is it a chemical thing we're talking about here uh, that he is hoping will produce the aphrodisiac uh, quality or the fertility quality that he's looking for here? Now, that compounds given off by the tree branches in the water served as an aphrodisiac is a possibility. There, there is the sap and the bark of various kinds of plants which does, in certain animals, 
have an aphrodisiac uh, quality. But that such compounds floating in the water would affect the genetic makeup of these animals, would impact the DNA of them, is not known, but is really considered to be highly unlikely. Now that the visual image of these, you know, if we're just talking about the visual image, because that seems to be the emphasis here, they see these things. They see these things, and, and that's what's supposed to impact them. But that a visual image could stimulate an animal is, is a possibility. But that it would affect them genetically is virtually a ludicrous idea, at least as far as science understands it today, as far as I know anyway. Now, whatever was Jacob's intent here is really not important. Because it is not what Jacob does that produces the product. It's God who does it. It's interesting how God often will accomplish his purpose no matter what it is we attempt to do. Whether we try to help him or hinder him, he still brings about his plan. And, you know, he may have looked down and, you know, I'm sure that, that God had a little uh, humorous thought about this whole thing here. He says, oh, well, I'll give it to him anyway, you know. And uh, was Jacob ever convinced that that didn't help? Well, there's no indication. I mean, after all, if all this product was coming forth, he was probably reinforced in his thinking. But certainly he knew, and he does give credit, and we'll notice that, he gives credit to God. God is the one who is responsible, regardless of what implement was used or what scientific practice uh, took place at this particular time. Now, how did God do it? Did God set aside the laws of heredity for a period of time in these herds? Well, that's a possibility. God can do anything, you know. Or is it possible that what God did was to see to it that the black goats, let's just talk about goats and not talk about sheep since that's what this has to do with, uh, even though the principle is the same, that God saw to it that those who mated were all the middle box goats. That is, goats who both the male and the female possessed both the dominant and the recessive gene. And that as they mated, therefore, there always was a 25% chance of the recessive gene showing up and thus being striped or spotted or speckled or whatever. And that God then, beyond that, uh, even influenced the situation so that it was the recessive gametes that tended to uh, m meet and, and for conception to occur at a higher than normal rate. See, that seems to be implied here. I'm not saying that it's implied that God did it that way, but it's implied that the non-solid black goats were multiplying at a much higher rate than should have been expected under normal conditions. That seems to be clearly implied here. So what is it that God did? Well, God could have done any of those things. You know, God is able to accomplish his will by means that we have no comprehension of. He blessed Jacob with an extraordinarily large number of animals that should not have come from a herd that was all black goats and then over here all white sheep. And you know, animal after animal was being born who was speckled and spotted and, and over here was, you know, had black and gray and brown in the coat so that it would be Jacob's by definition of the agreement 
that they had made. So we have an abnormally high percentage of the animals that were to be Jacob's. And you know what's very interesting too? It seems to be implied in here that the animals that were pro produced, that were the, what should we call them, hybrids, or at least those with the recessive genes, were the stronger animals. Whereas those that were left behind and, and those that were reproducing the solid colors tend to be the feebler animals. And so it makes the statement there that in verse 42, at the latter part, he did not, well, when the flock was feeble, he did not put them in. So the feebler were Laban's and the stronger were Jacob's. Did this bless Jacob? <laughs> well, what is the implication of that last verse in the passage? It says the man became exceedingly prosperous. Exceedingly prosperous. Wealthy, rich, if you will. And his, his, his herds were multiplying, so much so that he was able to sell off some of his goats and sell off some of his sheep so that he was able to what? Hire or buy male and female servants. He was able to acquire camels and donkeys. They were not coming from the union, obviously, of these goats. He was buying them and adding them <laughs> to, his, uh, to his household. <laughs> Jacob's flocks were growing at a greater rate than Laban's. And they were growing at a greater rate than Laban's for at least two reasons. First of all, his herd was growing by immigration. That is, Jacob's herd was grow growing by immigration. There were animals coming out of, well, that's where it started in the first place, but it continued to happen. Animals that were being born in Laban's herd, which were, according to the agreement, Jacob's were coming into Jacob's herd. And so his herd was growing by outsiders coming into his herd, and then his herd itself was multiplying at a greater rate than was Laban's because his were the stronger animals and Laban's were the weaker animals, the feebler, Scripture says. And obviously Laban's herd was being diminished by the animals that were emigrating out of his herd, being pulled out of his herd and put into Jacob's herd. Now, we really need to get that down and understand that, not that it's particularly difficult, but because when you look at the next chapter, you begin to understand why the attitude of Laban and his sons is as it's found to be. And before we move to chapter 31, are there any questions or are there any insights here that you may have relative to this? Okay. Let's look at first. Uh, chapter 31 of, uh, of Genesis. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's sons, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our fathers, he has made all this wealth. And Jacob saw that the attitude of Laban, saw the attitude of Laban, and behold, it was not friendly towards him as formerly. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. 
So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field. And he said to them, I see your father's attitude that it is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. And you know that I have served your God with all my strength. I'm sorry. I have served your father <laughs> with all my strength. Yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. And it came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw a dream. And behold, the male goats which were mating were striped and speckled and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, Here am I. And he said, Lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped and speckled and mottled. For I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar, where you made a vow to me. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. And Rachel and Leah answered and said to him, Do we still have any portion or inheritance in our father's house? Are we not reckoned by him as foreigners? For he has sold us and has also entirely consumed our purchase price. Surely all the wealth which God has taken away from our father belongs to us and our children. Now then, do whatever God has said to you. You notice that implied in the middle of this passage is something that's not explained in the previous chapter. And that is, even after the agreement had been made, apparently Laban attempted to modify it. The idea is, apparently he said, well, maybe it shouldn't have been that you could have all the non-black amongst the goat and all the non-white among the sheep, but that you could only have those that have a certain color pattern. And when that color pattern started showing up in large numbers, he said, well, no, that wasn't what I really want, meant. What I meant was this color pattern, you know. And so we kept changing it, and then all of a sudden, those are the animals that kept being produced. Now, there is no way. You could strip rods and stick them in, 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 in watering troughs and keep making all these changes. You know. It's obviously the hand of God. God reaching down and saying, okay, that's the bargain, then we'll show Laban a thing or two. I'm going to bless Jacob no matter how much Laban tries to prevent it from happening. You know, it just keeps reminding me of the Exodus. When God said to the children of Israel, go and get the gold and silver from the Egyptians and, and then leave the country with it. I mean, they owe it to you, in effect, is what God was saying. And so it says God impoverished the Egyptians because of the 400 years of slavery that the Israelites had endured. That was God's dealing. It was fair. It was just. Now, the individual Egyptians may not have felt so, but God, in his oversight of the whole picture, knew it was true. And God knows that what's happening here with Laban and Jacob is just. And that's what God is doing. Now, remember, God is a God of justice, and he is a God of mercy. And we can be thankful for his justice, and we can be extremely thankful for his mercy. Because all of us would face condemnation if he were just alone, and not also merciful. Now, in the beginning, Laban had readily agreed to the labor contract. You know, they had their, their, their meeting, you know, and here's management and here's labor, and they worked out their, uh, their bargain. 
And Laban thought it was a great bargain because he felt he would get the blessing of Jacob's presence. Now remember, we're not talking about just having an extra hired hand here. We're talking about a man that Laban recognized was sort of like a Midas, you know, going around everything he touched, turned to gold. Well, sort of like everything Jacob did, multiplied. And, and so this was like having, you know, a special blessing of God. And so the cost would be relatively little because I've purged the herd and what, how much is this herd likely to produce those animals? Very, very small percentage. I can handle that. But of course, the herds were producing a lot higher percentage than he had anticipated because of God's intervention. So he's no longer happy with the bargain. And that's why he kept changing it. And even when he changed it, it didn't make any difference. He was still unhappy with the bargain. But now what we discover is that his sons are also now becoming extremely unhappy with the bargain that their father had made because Jacob's herd is growing. I mean, it's almost like before their eyes, it's multiplying and spreading out across the landscape. And their father's herd seems to be static in comparison, at least, even though it still was growing. But it seemed to be static. And these guys were becoming envious, turning green, if you will, with envy. Why? Because they perceived that their inheritance was not growing like it otherwise would. You know, there's nothing worse, it seems, to bring out the, the vileness in, in people than to, to attend the reading of a will, you know? And this is notorious, you know, where the, the executor reads the will and the people are all sitting there and soon they start getting angry because this one didn't get as much as that one and, you know, how come he gave this to charity and how come this and how come that? And, you know, phew, people who otherwise might be sweet, loving little people suddenly become greedy monsters. Uh, and, and that's what's happening here. These sons are saying, whoa, those could be ours. All that Jacob has, that could be ours over there. And look, Jacob's going to rip it all off and he's going to take, take it away. Now, they refused, of course, to acknowledge that God was responsible for this. They're not coming at this and saying, well, you know, God, God bless Jacob, and so, I mean, the whole deal. I mean, we're all coming out of this very well off, and so let's, let's have no complaint. No, they're looking at it as a, from, from totally human perspective. They failed to remember that 20 years before, their father had relatively modest herds. You know, he had probably several hundred goats and sheep and whatever else, and, uh, they, and, and now he's got... Yeah, tens of thousands of them, and, and they, they don't recognize that that change has taken place and that their inheritance has become vast compared to what it had been originally. All they can see is Jacob's herds out there. There's one thing about greed, and that is it is blinding. Like their father, they didn't have a grateful bone in their bodies. You know, it's not for nothing that the scripture over and over again says, and be thankful. Give thanksgiving. Give thanks. Because if you're a thankful person, if you have a thankful heart, then a lot of these other things will never get a, a root in your life, you know, in my life. It's pretty hard to be viciously greedy if you're constantly thankful, right? The two are, you know, they're, they're at odds with each other. and They can't exist in the in the same place. But these men, like their father, are consumed 
by greed. Their father has been a terrible example to them down through the years. And now, like father, like son. No matter what they were inheriting, I mean, they could have inherited palaces and kingdoms, but if Jacob was also getting palaces and kingdoms, all they could see was they weren't getting that too. Greed is the insatiable appetite to possess something. The unsatisfiable appetite to have something. That's what greed is all about. And it's a major affliction of the human race. It goes hand in hand with pride. Pride and greed are blood brothers. They seem to be born one out of the other. And no one is immune to the temptation to be greedy for something. Now, there are a lot of different things we can be greedy for. It may not even be a tangible thing, but we can all be tempted to be greedy. The scripture has a lot of things to say about greed. It's a, it's a major theme that you'll find through scripture, either directly stated or implied as you read through the passage. And this is one of the passages right here, even though it doesn't say, and now greed's a terrible thing and these were greedy boys, but that's what you see coming out of it uh, as you look at this particular situation. Paul tells us that greed amounts to idolatry. You, you start reading scripture closely, you, you start discovering some pretty awful things. You know, the scripture teaches us way back in Samuel, for example, that rebellion is as witchcraft. And, and Paul says, greed amounts to idolatry. If you're greedy, you might as well be worshiping Baal or Moloch or, or Zeus or something because that's what it really amounts to. Jesus alludes to that when he talks in both Matthew and Luke about the account that we've read so many times, each of us has certainly, that we cannot serve God and mammon. Whatever that mammon might be, it seems implied to be riches, but it can be other things. We can't serve God and this other God, because if we're serving this God, we hate the true God. And if we serve this God, we hate this false God over here, because to follow mammon is idolatry. Whatever we might substitute for that word mammon in our own lives. In 2 Peter, Peter tells us that those having a heart trained in greed are accursed children. Think about that for a minute. Those trained in greed are accursed children. Now that verse could be written as a subtitle here in the passage we're reading. Their father trained them to be greedy. And now they're cursed by this greed in their lives. I mean, greed is a curse. It, helps, it causes us to not see all the good things and all the blessings of our life because this one thing we don't have enough of. And in our society, it's particularly awful because we see it all the time. You know, all the advertisements are, you've got to have this and you've got to have this. You've got to have more of this and more of this. And, of course, everything's very expensive that you've got to have more of. So you've got to have more money in order to buy more of these things. And it all functions around or, or functions as a, as a spinoff from this, this greed. Solomon, who ought to know what having a lot of possessions did to one, wrote, riches do not profit in the day of wrath. 
but righteousness delivers from death. The righteousness of the upright will deliver him or them, but the treacherous will be caught by their own greed. When a wicked man dies, his expectation will perish. In other words, you can't take it with you. <laughs> when the treacherous, the wicked, the greedy dies, all of his hope and all of his dream, it's all gone. Naked we come into the world and naked we leave. And we don't take anything with us. And the little kingdom we build up in between is sure a useless thing when it comes to standing before the Almighty and saying, but God, I had this car garage full of Cadillacs. You know? I had a house on the coast and a house in the mountains and a house in the prairie and house in Europe and I belonged to a timeshare that I could travel all over the world uh, six months out of the year. You know, God says so. <laughs> you know, I mean, what does that have to do with righteousness? What does that have to do with what I called you to do and to be and to use your talents and your abilities and the gifts that I have given to you? There are two New Testament passages I put in the outline there that I thought we ought to... Uh, just take a minute to look at, because they forthrightly deal with this whole question. And uh, we're very familiar, of course, with the, the Luke account, Luke chapter 12. In fact, our pastor will probably be to that pretty soon here. Luke 12, reading at verse 13. And someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, Tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. <laughs> but he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Now, what is Jesus saying there? He is our judge. <laughs> but he's, he's saying is, I mean, uh, suddenly you're deciding I'm supposed to be a judge here in this situation? You don't even want to pay attention to what I have to say? But now that money has to be involved, is involved, you suddenly want me to do something. Verse 15, he said to them, Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a certain rich man was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself saying, What shall I do since I have no place to store my crops? And he said, This is what I'll do. I'll tear, tear down my barns and I'll build bigger ones. And there I'll store all my grain and my goods. And verse, the next verse gives the key to this man's heart. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. You forgot to add the last part of it, for tomorrow you die. <laughs> Deal. But God said to him, You fool. This very night your soul is required of you. And now who will own what you have prepared? So is the man who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich towards God. Yeah, that's such an, a, a potent parable. It's a wonder anybody could read that and continue to be greedy. You know, uh, it, it just, I mean, it's like a slap between the face with a two by four. I mean, between the eyes, between the face. And, you know, it reminds me of, of, uh, <laughs> of uh, what's the guy's name? 
in the book of Daniel. Um, the, the handwriting... Yeah, Daniel. <laughs> oh, yeah, Daniel. <laughs> no, uh, the feast. Belshaz- oh, it's Belshazzar. <laughs> Belshazzar's feast. Belshazzar, you know, he's, he's got so much he doesn't know what to do next, so he says, well, bring all the golden and silver implements from the house of the Lord. Let's drink wine out of those. I mean, it's sort of like I'll go up and tweak God's nose, you know. I haven't got any other thrilling thing to do. And so he does that, and uh, God says, in effect, you fool, tonight you're a dead man. And tonight he was a dead man, you know, because the Persians broke through, and zap, he was gone. (laughs) And Daniel, you know, Daniel, such a, some of these guys, there's, there's a bit of humor there that you so, don't always catch because of the uh, seriousness of the whole situation. But he offered Daniel a royal robe and a, and a chain of gold and said, I'll make you third in the kingdom. And, and Daniel, in effect, says, yeah, third in what kingdom, you know? <laughs> Your kingdom's gone, man. I don't want to be third in anything. In the book of Ephesians, we discover that greed is linked with some other attitudes and sins it helps us to put it in perspective you know sometimes we don't always recognize how serious greed really is it's sort of like Christians who think because they're pretending like what they're passing on is a prayer request that it's okay to gossip you know and we think that Christian gossip isn't quite as bad as gossip gossip that the Scripture is talking about. You know, well, there's no such thing as Christian gossip. There's only one kind. And there's only one kind of greed. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave himself up for us an offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Do not let immorality or any impurity or greed even be named among you as is proper among saints. There must be no filthiness or, and silly talk or coarse jesting, which are not fitting, but rather giving thanks. For this you know with certainty that no immoral person or impure person or covetous man who is an idolater has an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. No punches there. The greedy person is an idolater and he will not inherit the kingdom of God. And it's stuck right in there with the immoral and the impure and and filthy and silly and all the rest of it. I really feel sorry for the sons of Laban because they were, I mean, today we could say they were social victims. Well, certainly not just social victims. Their father was a very bad example, but they were responsible for how they turned out themselves. And they saw the example of Jacob and they rejected it. Rather than being like Jacob and worshiping the true God, and you keep seeing, as you read in the Genesis passage, he keeps giving God credit for what happens. The difference in the attitude is is really phenomenal. And hopefully the attitude of thanksgiving is what prevails in our hearts. And we recognize it's God who has done this, it's God who has done this. And we're not, yeah, I want more of this. Whatever it is, you know, doesn't even have to be a material thing. We can be greedy after immaterial things, you know, fame or, or, 
or some kind of emotional deal we, we need, you know, of some sort. And uh, Jacob became concerned as he watched this situation develop, wouldn't you? You start hearing these guys mumbling under their breath that you got all the good stuff. I mean, you're taking away our inheritance. And then he sees Laban's attitude, which had always before been, quote, friendly. Of course, you have to qualify that friendly. I mean, it was a kind of outward friendly, but he was always looking for a way to rip off Jacob. You know, some friend, but uh, he, at least he had an outwardly friendly attitude. But even that was becoming hostile, and he knew things were really in bad situation when that uh, happened. Now, had Jacob become complacent? Seeing his herds grow? Had he been, oh, this is great, look at all these animals, and, and he became, was it true that he had become so complacent in, in taking all these animals and watching his own herd grow that he forgot what God had commanded him to do? That he forgot what he had chosen to do himself, that he ought to be taken off for Canaan here? Well, you know, sometimes God has to do something to get us to hear and to obey. And so God allows the attitude of these men to become evident to Jacob, and Jacob feels threatened. And God is saying, wake up, bud. You know, you've been 20 years in, in, in Haran, in Padanaram, and, and that's long enough. It's time to go home. And uh, this got him thinking about it right away. And you'll notice in the dream, what does God say? I will be with you. He had already said that at Bethel. And now he's reminding him. He said, Jacob, don't be afraid. I'm going to be with you. Just go. It's time to go. So Jacob doesn't just pull up roots and say to everybody, jump on your camel, we're out of here. He calls Rachel and Leah, and he says, would you guys come out in the field with me? I have something to talk with you about. Now, I think that these ladies, the, you know, a couple of red flags went up right away. First of all, he says, come out in the field and talk. What? What's wrong with talking right here? Why do we have to go out in the field with the animals? And then why in the world is he calling the two sisters in this, at the same time to talk to them? You know, I mean, they were hardly on speaking terms with each other. And he's calling them both together into the field to talk with them. They knew that this was unusual and something was in the wind. And so I don't think they were surprised at all at what followed. Now, what is very unusual is... Uh, the fact that these two ladies would agree together on something. You know, you, you can get to the point, I, I keep thinking of, of putting this in a, in a broad perspective of France and England. You know, through most of history, France and England were at each other all the time, and all, in order for England to know which side in a war to join, all they had to do was find out which side France was on and jump on the other side and vice versa. You know, it's just this hatred and so it was with these two sisters, you know, they really didn't like each other, and the, li the likelihood of them agreeing together seemed pretty small. But uh, God would even intervene here. And so he takes them out in the field, why? So that nobody would overhear their conversation. He doesn't want to tip off Laban at all as to what's going on. And, and he gives them the message uh, from God. And he really emphasizes this. 
and this is important, and we don't have time to develop it today, but he emphasizes the fact that this is from God. And then I think he says some things about God so that those two ladies will recognize, yeah, this God is to be followed because he's more powerful than any God we've known up to this time. We have to admit that. And so, well, next, next week we'll, we'll look at his little conversation and the purposes behind what he said and what he did that afternoon in the field.